As we turn back to the book of Philippians, let's pray just now together. Lord, we pray to you because we desperately need you in these moments. Our our greatest need is to know more uh, of our God, to be brought closer to you, to understand more of uh, who you are and your purposes uh, for us. We long to live for you, O God, and we see our failings and we see our weakness. Uh, So we ask specifically, Lord God, that you would uh, speak to us tonight and help us to live for you. Um, we pray, Lord God, that you would show us how to live for Christ, that you would empower us to do so. And um, We pray, Lord God, uh, for grace. We know how precious your word is. We know that for all the world, it looks folly what we are uh, doing this evening, but we know it is your wisdom and uh, we do pray, Lord God, knowing that the, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the, the, the Word of God endures eternally. So we look to you for grace, for a help, for assistance in these moments. We long to, to have ears to hear from you, and we pray in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen. Okay, I, uh, when I came to faith, which is probably in, in my uh, early 20s, I came in at faith uh, from a reasonable, reasonably difficult situation. And when I did, I was full of the joys of the Lord. <laughs> you know that stereotypical picture you have of that young uh, believer f- just overflowing with excitement about what God has done? That was, that was me. Uh, but I, I will always remember what an older Christian uh, said to me at that point. He could see how, I, how delighted he was. And he said, this is great, great to see the joy. But he did say to me, uh, he said, Andy, be prepared for struggles in the Christian life. As he took this lively newborn, if you like, aside. And he said, you know, Andy, the Christian experience is no easy street Uh, that just because we have come to Christ, it does not discount us from trial and adversity in life. Now, if you are a a Christian in the room, and if you've been a Christian for any length of time, then I'm sure you would uh, agree with that uh, older Christian friend of mine. That Though we are, aren't we, the most privileged of people Uh, We know that coming to Jesus Christ does not mean for a second that our lives are free from strain or from struggle. So there's many people in this room just now who have experienced in their Christian life real disappointment. Disappointment. Isn't that right? Disappointment in careers. Disappointment in relationships. Disappointment in exams. Uh, Also, there are people in the room... uh, who really and truly know and have known great despair in their lives and despair with finances, let's be frank about it, and despair with failing health and family problems. So we know that coming to Christ means everything, doesn't it? It means everything to us, but it certainly does not mean an absence of adversity for the Christian. So how on earth do we respond to these times of trial 
and difficulty. Well, despite a couple of weeks away, you can maybe, I hope, remember what we're dealing with, can you, in the letter to the Philippians? We've had a couple of weeks away, but that's not a long time. We remember what Paul's doing, do we? He's writing to Christians in Macedonia, and he's writing with love, isn't he, with amazing affection. Well, tonight, in order to encourage these Philippians in the severe tests and trials that they were facing. What the apostle does this evening here, what he does is he begins to unpick some of the difficult situations that actually he's facing, the difficult situations the apostle is enduring. And maybe already, do you see what's going to happen this evening? So we look at this, as we see from Paul, what will emerge is an example for you And for me, we will see from Paul and in Philippians how it is that you and I as Christians can respond to adversity. So can I ask you to please have your Bibles open and make sure that the young people in the room can maybe have one eye on the portion of Scripture, on your phone, your tablet, or physical copy. Have Philippians 1 from verse 12 open and... Uh, First of all, there's three things tonight, but firstly, let's consider adversity and witness. That's the first heading, adversity and witness. Okay, will you think about this one for me just for a moment? Have you ever wanted to contact a loved one to assure them that you're okay, but you've been unable to make contact with them? Have you ever, I know it's a bit bit nuanced, it's a bit narrow, has that ever happened to you? Never wanted to contact a loved one to assure them that you're okay, but you've been unable to do, to do that. That happened to me, it's probably happened to me a few times, but it happened to me when I was a little kid. You know, my mum was expecting me back at a certain time, and I got delayed, probably up to all manner of mischief. We'll not go into that. And I realized that I was behind time. And you know what I didn't have? I didn't have 10 pence. I didn't have 20 pence for the phone, for that phone booth in order to phone my mom. And I knew my mom, oh no, I knew my mom was going to be worried sick about me and I couldn't make contact. There was actually a time before mobile phones, whether some of the kids believe this or not. Well, that sort of idea is actually what we're dealing with in front of us. Isn't that the case? you think about it, in Philippians 1, yes, Paul's in a, he's in, he is in a really difficult situation, but come on, friends, what does Paul know? Paul knows, first of all, that the Philippians have heard kind of vague reports about something that's happened to Paul. They've had vague reports. What else does Paul know? Paul knows because these Philippians love him, that these Philippians are going to be really, really anxious about the apostle Paul. So what does he do? He, will you allow this, he puts pen to paper. That's effectively what he does. He begins to tell the Philippians what is happening to him. Now, if your eye goes down to verse 12, do you see how he phrases it? He talks about what has happened to me. So maybe, this is what we need to do, maybe we just need to refresh our memories. Do we? What has happened to the Apostle Paul? Can you remember? Think about, where will we go? Acts 21, what's happened? Paul's been arrested, hasn't he, for preaching the gospel? And what does he do? He appeals to Caesar, do you remember? And he begins to be transferred to Rome. What happens on the way? As if things were not difficult enough. Paul's shipwrecked 
on the way. Eventually, he gets to Rome, and here, where is he? Got to get this. Where is he here? He's under house arrest in Rome. Don't think mafia-style house arrest, okay? You know, he's not in a big dressing guy and a cooking pasta sauce. No, in real seriousness, he's in immense discomfort. I mean, this is a terribly difficult situation. He is chained up like a dog 24 hours a a day, okay? Now, (laughs) given that that is his situation, what are you expecting him to write. Like if I'm writing to loved ones who are worried about me and I'm in that situation, do you know what I'm doing? I'm detailing all of the problems, aren't you? Like I'm writing about all the pain that I'm in with these chains and the the people around me and the food and the squalor and the misery of that. That's the tone. That's me. That's what I'm writing. Do you notice that's not what he does? Look, Look at verse 12. Do you notice he talks about and concerns himself with the spiritual consequences? That's it. Spiritual consequences. In fact, look what he says. It's mind blowing. So he says that this present imprisonment, look at the language, has served to advance the gospel. Isn't it mind-blowing? You've got here the greatest ever evangelist outside of our Lord, and he's cooped up in one room. He can't get anywhere. And he still said that has actually served to progress the good news. Isn't that amazing? I think Paul, partly maybe because he realizes this is an incredible claim he's making. What he does is he provides you with a couple of pieces of evidence that back up this claim that the gospel's advanced. And I just want us to hear, notice the first one. So please look at verse 13. So how is it possible? that these chains are advancing the gospel. How is that possible? Look at verse 13. Let's read it together. He says, my chains, as a result of these chains, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard, you got it? The whole palace guard, praetorium, and to everybody else that I am in chains for Christ. There's, 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 there's the claim. Okay, here, let me just speak again to some of the younger people in the room, just so that you come with us on this, okay? Um, big, important question for you. Have you seen Star Wars? Not the new stuff. The young people, yeah, a lot of nodding heads in the balcony. Okay, that's good. So Star Wars. And you, do you remember Jabba the Hutt? Do you remember Jabba the Hutt? Do you remember... Uh, Jabba the Hutt's guards. Do you remember them? Sort of green, big, pig-looking monsters with axe. Yes, you remember that? That's who we're dealing with. Well, not really. That's who I always think about. See, what did Paul mention? He talks about the whole palace guard, doesn't he? The praetorium here. Now, what we've got to appreciate is this was a, a huge unit, wait for the figures here, of about 9,000 Roman guards. Now, you've got to imagine, they're like ferocious, elite, crack troops, okay? And these were the guys who were actually charged with looking after the emperor himself. You've got that picture, 9,000 of these guards. What's happened? So yes, okay, they've worked out that Paul is a religious prisoner. Is there anything more than that? Verse 13, do you notice the language? He actually talks about Christ. What's the picture? 
here. Do you see it? You've got 9,000 guards. And it's that they have taken their turn in that customary four-hour slot of guarding this prisoner. What's happened? Paul has told them, Jesus of Nazareth. That's what happens here. Do you understand? 9,000 and the rest. That's what Paul says, isn't it? 9,000 and the rest. They've heard of a cross that provides forgiveness. They've heard of a savior that has actually secured salvation. All of these soldiers, he didn't have a God who offers reconciliation freely by his grace. Don't you agree with me that the Philippian guard, the Philippian jailer, must have had a smile on his face when this letter was read out, read aloud in the church. Now, let's try and tie this right down in St. Peter's tonight. Tie it down for application. Do you remember the start? Remember what we said? There's help here for us in our times of adversity. So how? I think definitely there's a theological note to strike, isn't there? Because I talked about myself earlier on, this young, enthusiastic Christian bubbling over. This is how I used to think. You, You consider what you make of it. I used to think like this, that, okay, Christians face trials and they'll be difficult and they're a bit of an obstacle to God if a Christian goes through a hard time. But but I used to think, oh, oh, God's probably strong enough that he can probably use our trials for good. What do you think? I used to think, oh, yes, a, a, a trial, going through an illness, a problem, a bereavement, okay, this is an obstacle for us. And it's an obstacle for God, but maybe he's strong enough that he can somehow maybe bring some good fruit through this trial. What do you think of that idea? I hope you think it's nonsense. I hope you appreciate how insufficient a view of God's sovereignty that is. Because what do we know? Come on. What do we know? Such is God's power that even the adversity that we go through is sovereignly ordered. Even the trials that you're maybe even facing tonight, such is his power, sovereignly orchestrated. Think of that situation in front of you. I mean, if it's you and me in that house arrest, we're scratching our heads and we're despairing and thinking this is out of control. But do you see what God has done? Do you see it? God in his goodness and his orchestration has used Paul's chains to take the gospel to an entirely new audience. Isn't that what he's done? You think about it. Paul's, God's used those chains and he's taken it to soldiers, soldiers who are very difficult to reach probably. And God's taken the gospel here to to soldiers who are perhaps very influential. As somebody else says, they say this. Paul doesn't here say that the gospel continued to make progress in spite of adversity. That's not it. Rather, the adversity itself has turned out for the advance. So there's a theological note to strike. But doesn't that also then lead into a very practical thing in the Christian life? And perhaps, I'm sure you see what it is. Friends, surely it's the case from this, that even in times of difficulty, in fact, I'll rephrase that, especially in times of adversity, you and I as Christians must try to seize opportunities to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you're a Christian in the room, you know fine well how 
arresting it can be, don't you? When you see a brother or sister in the faith go through a really difficult time, and at the real pit, at the real bottom of this despair, they continue to look to Christ, and they continue to speak of Christ. Isn't it amazing to see that? Isn't it affecting and arresting when we see a believer do that? Isn't it? We as Christians are changed by that. Well, can you imagine what it'd be like for an unbeliever to see it? You know, it's mind-blowing to them. As they look on and they see a person concerned more for the honor of Jesus Christ than their own predicament, even through trial. The Holy Spirit can use that to, to turn an unbeliever upside down. You see what we must do. We must pray for greater zeal that we can follow the Apostle Paul and continue to speak of Christ even in the depths of despair. So, adversity and witness. Second of all, this evening, let's consider adversity and encouragement. Adversity and encouragement. Perhaps you recognize what Paul goes on to do here. He goes from speaking or showing the effects of his chains on those inside the prison. He then moves to show the effect of the chains to those outside the prison. Did everyone pick up on that? I'll rephrase it if you want. He goes from speaking about the effects of the chains to unbelieving Roman soldiers. Now he moves on to show the effects of chains on Christians. And here, what I want to do is use Google Earth. Well, not really. But you know what Google Earth is. I'm sure everybody knows what it is. That amazing app where you've got the Earth and you can zero in. You can spy on uh, people's homes and gardens from up above using these satellite images. Kind of want to pretend to use that for a moment. Because what I want to do, first of all, is for us to take a bird's eye view of what Paul says. And then I want us to zero in on a couple of areas. So let's, let's go for the bird's eye view, the, the top of Google Earth, if you like. Would you look with me to verse 14, please? Verse 14. So we're asking, well, what is the effect of Paul's imprisonment on Christians? And he says, because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Everybody in the room, can you see the big picture? Can you? You know, Paul's maybe hearing from some visitors. He's had visitors in, under house arrest, and they're saying, Paul, you won't believe it. Things are changing outside. And did you see the effect of it? It's like billows on this dwindling fire. What's been the effect of Paul's faithfulness and adversity? It's fanning the flames of the zeal in the Christians in, in Rome. Like their apathy for Christ has been replaced with this zeal. They've heard about Paul and, and, and these believers are going out into the streets of Rome and they're telling other people of Jesus. They're, they're telling them the gospel. Now, that's the big picture. Let's double click in Google Earth or use your fingers or whatever you do. Let's zero in a couple of areas. First of all, let's zero in on who exactly is bearing witness in verse 14. Have a look back again. So who is it that's being emboldened? And so what does Paul say? So the wording is most of the brothers. Now, we probably skimmed over that. I actually think that's more important than it at first seems. Because if it weren't for phrases like that, what might we think about evangelism? 
if it weren't for phrases like that. You know, if it weren't for phrases like that, and because of portions elsewhere where evangelism is spoken about as a real gift, remember what Paul says to Timothy, go and do the work of an evangelist. If it weren't for phrases like this in front of us, we might think evangelism is just for a select few people. You know, the evangelist, is that an office? Is evangelism just for office bearers? Is it just for people who are particularly talented or gifted in bearing witness to Jesus? And then you come to sections of Scripture like this. What's Paul saying? Who's, who's witnessing? Who is emboldened in their witness? He says the, the brothers are. Most of the brothers are. Do you see? Who is it that's to witness? Do you know who it is? It's you, it's me, and it's all of us. All of us have this, what would we call it, a duty we do call it responsibility. All of us have this immense privilege this week of going out into Dundee and the surrounding areas and seeking to try to tell people, people who are lost and condemned. We've got the privilege of pointing them to where it is that they might be saved. Most of the brothers are emboldened. But then the other place that we have to zero in on is how it is that they are infused with greater boldness. And I don't like doing this. I've really wrestled with this in preparation and we won't do this a lot. But it's important, I think. So yes, we'll go there. I, I want to just highlight a difference in the, the or a, a variation, slight variation in the translations that we've got in the room. And, and, and I know that sounds a bit daft and so forth. And I don't like doing it. And it is important here. So would you look at verse 14? Now let's look at verse 14. Now we will have a lot of variety in this room. Because you're using your phones. We don't even have a church Bible at the moment, do we? So we've all got a way variety of people. Most of you will be in the Greek, I'm sure. But if not, there'll be a different translations. Okay, so what do you have in verse 14? Now, look for in the Lord. So some of you will have this. Some of you will have most of the brothers in the Lord. That was what the reading was up on the screen. So that's what I've got in front of me here. Most of the brothers in the Lord. So what does in the Lord modify? Brothers. Brothers in the Lord. Okay. Here's, here is some other versions. ESV. This is, this is neither what is correct. Listen. ESV says, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord. What does in the Lord modify? Confidence. Now, do you, you're thinking, Sunday night, man, really? It's hot in here, and you're splitting hairs. Really? Do, do you not see how important it is if you linger on that? Because what's happening in Rome Answer me this. Are the Christians in Rome just taking a deep breath and thinking, come on, we can do this. Let's go out. Let's go. We, we can do this. We'll summon up our own courage and we'll go out and tell people about Jesus. Is that what's happening? No, that's not what's happening. What's happening in Rome is the Christian's faith in God is being enhanced, developed, advanced as they are hearing about what God is doing through Paul. Do you see it? 
as they hear, wait a minute, God is able to do that through a man who is cooped up in a room. So thinking, what can God do in my life with all of this freedom that I have? Do you see this? Is it confidence? Is it simple boldness? Summed up in, in the interior of a person. No, this is confidence and confidence in the Lord. And so perhaps surely indeed the application is clear for us. As we look at that situation in Rome, surely we also see that in our times of adversity, in your times of difficulty and trial, God can do more through you than you can possibly imagine. I mean, think about it. I think Paul hasn't even met some of those believers in Rome. He's not even clapped eyes on some of those believers in Rome. And guess what's happening? God is using Paul's faithfulness and God is using it to embolden those people's faith and reliance on him. That can happen with you in your times of adversity. So I ask you really directly, are you going through a tough time tonight as a Christian? Are you going through real proper adversity? And I urge you to keep your eyes fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to Jesus Christ because you do not know how God can use you just now, even for the development of the rest of the believers in this place. That through your faithfulness and adversity, we might, this church, might be pushed out by God in the streets of Dundee to tell people where they can be saved and saved from hell. So we see adversity in witness. We see adversity in encouragement. And we close, we end, thirdly, with adversity and rivalry. Would you agree with me that the, what we've looked at so far has been quite surprising? Surely you all agree it's surprising that you've got a man of action like Paul blocked up in one room and yet the tone is so marvelous and, and the gospel has progressed. It's surprising. I'm sure you agree with that. As surprising as that is, it is in no way as shocking as what Paul goes on to say. Because you probably noticed that when Steve came up to read. But what Paul goes on to do is to speak about people who are preaching. Now, wait for it. People who are preaching, but preaching from wicked motives. Did you, did you notice it in the text? People are proclaiming in the church, preaching in the church, but their hearts are all wrong. They're, they're, they're preaching from a wrong motive. Now, for the third time, I don't know if you're counting, but for the third time tonight, we have to ask, well, who are they? Okay, you're saying we're reading from Paul. There's people preaching with wrong motives. Who on earth are they? Well, some would certainly take the line that who, who Paul's talking about there is unbelieving people. I wonder if that's how you read it. Somebody, lots of people would take that line that you know, Paul's talking about, what would they say? They would say pagan people. They would be saying they're heretics. People that are preaching a gospel that is no gospel at all. Now, there's reasons why they would make that conclusion because some of these terms, if you look at it, envy, selfish ambition, rivalry, they're used elsewhere in the Bible, aren't they? They're used both in the vice lists 
of those who are ungodly and condemned. And those are terms that are actually used in the pastoral epistles of false teachers themselves. So you understand why people make that conclusion. Who are these people? Lots of people say they're, they're false teachers, they're heretics, they're unbelievers. Hang on. Hang on, though. What does Paul call them? He's called them brothers. And do you see what they preach? They preach Christ. And isn't Paul delighted with the fruit of their labors? Do you see who we're dealing with in actual fact? I mean, in a way, it's even more heartbreaking, isn't it? In a sense, it's incredibly sad. We are dealing with believers. We are dealing with Christian men who are heralding the gospel, but men who have this personal animosity towards Paul. Do you see it? Rivals of Paul, people who are envious of Paul, men who are just wanting to kick Paul clearly when he's down. Now now you know that. Now you see that. How are you expecting Paul to respond? You think about his predicament. He's in house arrest, and the people outside, the Christians outside, are backbiting and speaking ill of him, and they're, they're trying to subvert his authority. How do you think Paul is coping with this? Do you think he's crying? The last word of our section, halfway through verse 18, he responds with joy. And verse 18 makes that abundantly clear, the reasoning why. Do you see it? I I rejoice because no matter what Christ has preached, is it not astounding? What grace. It's as though Paul just does not care what people think of him. He doesn't even care what people are saying about him behind his back. The only thing Paul cares about is the glory and the honor and the praise and the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And we end tonight, and you know, we could go, all over the shop, couldn't we? <laughs> I mean, we could go to, unfortunately, how familiar that sounds, right? I mean, I think we're all, we're all very much aware of the fact that Christians, we like to bicker with each other. We like to fight with each other and personal animosity, elder with elder. You know, Sunday school teacher, a Sunday school teacher, rivalry, envy, backbiting, member of the church with member of the church. It's the same in St. Peter's, I'm sure, as everywhere else. There will be people in this congregation who quite simply need to be told to grow up. And there will be people in this congregation who, who need to refocus on the bigger picture and to forget personal rivalry. You know, to to worry much less about our own honor and our own name and to remember the bigger picture. People in Dundee dying and going to hell in condemnation. It's the same here as everywhere else. And we could focus on that, but we won't. (laughs) We won't. Because there's something here that's beautiful. I read it this week. Somebody pointed this out, and I love it so much. This is where we'll end. I want you to take the Bible in your hands. Look at, the, look at the portion of Scripture. Start at verse 12. Have it in front of you. This is how we'll end. Are you ready? Love it so much. Do you notice in a section where there's adversity and trial and, 
and terror for Paul. Do you notice that in every single phrase, every single verse, in a variety of ways, the Apostle Paul makes mention of the gospel. Do you notice it? Look, I'll read it. Verse 12. Now, I want you to go, uh, I want you to know, brothers, that what's happened to me has re- really served to advance what? The gospel. Verse 13, as result has become clear through the whole palace guard that I am in chains for Christ. Verse 14, they speak the word of God more courageously. Verse 15, it's true that some preach Christ. Verse 16, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Verse 17, the former, what do they do? They preach Christ, verse 18, but what does it matter? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, the important thing is Christ, 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 Christ is preached. Do you see it, friends? In trouble and adversity, what shines through Paul's concern for the glory and the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And why is that? Sitting in house arrest, sitting in that room, what does Paul know? Paul knows that the Lord Jesus Christ, for him, for him, Jesus has endured the greatest adversity of all. I mean, we can talk about envy and rivalry. Think about our Lord, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. And we can think about Roman soldiers. What has Jesus Christ endured? Their torture, their abuse, their mockery. But that's nothing compared to the fact that for Paul and for you, Christian friend, the Lord Jesus Christ has endured the adversity of the cross. You go home tonight. You remember that on the way. The Lord Jesus Christ, for you, Christian, he's endured the adversity of bearing the punishment for all of your sin, all of it, born in his body, on that tree. Why? For joy? Yes, for joy. All for the joy that was set ahead of him in knowing that through that work you would be saved and reconciled with God. Are you in adversity? Are you going through trial tonight? Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to him tonight. Who is he? The Lord of glory. Who is he? Oh, he is a sympathetic High priest. Friends, let's bow and let's pray. Gracious Father, we uh, confess our grumbling in adversity. We confess that our immediate response to trial is to complain and to moan and to lose sight of your sovereignty. And the fact that you are the God who stands over every detail of our life, the minutiae belongs to you, our sovereign God. Forgive us, help us. Help us to follow after Paul. Help us to witness to others of Christ's faithfulness, his goodness, that our concern for the honor of Jesus Christ would outweigh our concern for our own name and situation. And how we praise you for Calvary. And we praise you that they are the Lord Jesus Christ has gone through the greatest of trials, all out of love for us, all to win us for you. Lord God, be praised, be praised. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.